Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Hey, what's up, guys? Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Today we have episode 172. At the end of the episode, we will have three of the scenes from Trying to Die in the Pandemic. Hopefully you guys are digging that one. I think this will put us well past the halfway mark. So <clears throat> flying through this one, doing three at a time. Pretty excited about today. Today I get to go to Midsummer Scream. They always put on really cool events. The Horror Writers Association is having a booth. I think it's 537. It is at the Long Beach Convention Center. Pretty cool venue. I will be there tonight from 6 to 10, signing books, meeting people, uh, looking forward to hanging out with my co-authors and other authors from the group. Evan Boffman, who's doing Trans to Die in a Dark Fairy Tale. I'm meeting him early to get some books from him to talk about his book. Brian Asman's going to be there. Kevin Anderson, a couple of my other friends. So really cool to see all of them. Hopefully, John Palisano will be there as well. I'm sure he will. So that should be a pretty cool event. Just going to be selling Untold Mayhem, which is currently on sale for 99 cents. Kindle book, I think, for the next three days. What else do we have? All these Silent Twist reunion and then the Try Not to Die series. Those are the main ones I'll be doing because it's a horror convention. So I will focus on that. It's been an awesome week as far as yoga exercise. I did, my friend George and I had been doing a 30-day detox program on inner dimensions. I really enjoy the teacher, Travis Elliott, and his wife. So that program was pretty difficult. It was hard to stay with it. We weren't doing it every single day. We did every one of the 30 days, but we didn't do yoga on the weekend. So we would just, you know, push those days off to Monday or whatever. But then oftentimes I would be doing other types of yoga in between or if I missed a day. But we just did the final one the other day and it was brutal. It was pretty awesome. It was a good reminder of not only how far we've come, but also how far we still need to go, what our limitations are, all these new poses and flows. And so that's kind of fun. And also I picked up lifting with him again this week, which made the yoga much harder. I was definitely feeling a lot more, but it's all good. So I've been feeling good physically, just the importance of taking care of yourself. I also went to acupuncture this week. That's always nice. And so very fortunate that I have the time though, or that I'm making the time to take care of my body. You know, I have so many friends that just do not do that, that just given up. They just said, fuck it. They just want to eat whatever they want and drink whatever they want and not go to a doctor and all this kind of stuff. It's like, cool. No problem, man. Like live your life how you want to live it. Don't be upset later on. Shit goes bad. But, and shit, I also had another exciting thing. I contacted Duncan Ralston last week to ask him suggestions for an artist for Transcendize books at Death Fest. Wild West, I want to do our fucked up little family. I need to do trying to die bite-sized stories one and two, and then another box set. So I have a lot of a lot of stuff I want covers for, but especially the Death Fest and well, all three of them, because I want to put them out for pre-orders and they're getting much closer. So Duncan's guy couldn't do it. I reached out to my buddy Jay, who did Ain't No Messiah, the cover for Ain't No Messiah, which is definitely one of my favorite covers. I think it's badass. He also did Trying to Die at Grandma's House 1 and 2. He did the original cover for Untold Mayhem. I think he's done some other ones. He's done, he was the creator of, he built Dirk the Demon, the puppet. He's done all kinds of cool art for me. So I had him over to the house just to hang out, catch up. 
and uh, he was able to he could use the work right now and so he's knocking out those covers which is badass so he should have something for me next week and with jay it's cool because i was able to tell him my ideas like okay here's what the co-author and i were thinking here's like three different ideas but here's what the story's about what do you think and on each of these he came up with a different uh, death fest was the same idea he came up with his his own and it's the same as ours the other ones he came up with were original i think they're going to be super cool and so i am excited to see that i'm excited it's it's such a cool thing to be able to collaborate with friends and then you know who knows after this whether he'll help with the board game or what we're going to do but i know jay and i will be doing a lot of stuff together and that's super cool in fact he actually got a literary agent and is working on his first young adult graphic novel which is going to be super successful i believe so i'm going to help him develop that too just not not the ideas he already has ideas i already heard this awesome story i'm just going to help him take it from up here into paper so i think it won't be that hard an exchange he's probably you know and when i help him that way he'll probably do a cover for me for free so that way we're just bartering we're trading we're helping each other we both you know have something in it so that was super cool now on to religion regret and respect that's what i'm writing about today in a newsletter i don't know how much i'm going to get into it because the biggest thing was i don't want to not only because i don't want to fuck up my readership so part of it is business wise if i were to say this is what i believe this is the truth you believe something else you're wrong i would lose a lot of my readers like Half people are going to be this way, half people are going to be that way, or maybe more or less, whatever. So a significant portion would be offended by whatever I had to say, whether it be religion, politics, shit you just don't talk about, shit I don't talk about. So, you know, I didn't want to bring it up. But if we do it respectfully, and I think that's what this is all about, then it shouldn't be an issue, you know. And, and I think, all right, so here's here's where it all comes from. The other day I posted something about regret. I posted a regret meter. I just found a meter online and I put it up. It said, how much regret would you have when you find out that you're about to die on your deathbed? How much regret you, are you going to have? I believe, I mean, it's been a long time since I said, saw it. I never really actually read the study, but I believe a lot of people have a lot of fucking regret on their deathbed. You know, I think that's the number one thing. Like they worked too much. They did this. They didn't tell my family this, blah, 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 blah. You know, I wanted to do this. I want to do that. So I was thinking, I think about death often, <laughs> obviously, whether I'm writing or whether I'm thinking about my own, you know, something that has helped me a lot that I do just about every fucking single day is remind myself like, ah, this could be it. I could die today. And my kids could die today. You know, because having the kids die, that was such a scary thought. That was debilitating when my daughter was born. I was so fearful of that. But after I like accepted that, accepted I have no control over if the car is going to come and destroy my family in a second or shit, who knows? Who knows what it's going to be, whether it's cancer, whether whatever it is, like something can happen. So I think about that a lot. I, I've, I've, I've thought about my mortality a shit ton. One of my friends posted, a good friend of mine who has cancer, he's been fighting cancer for a while, doesn't probably have a long time to live. He was saying, you know, that my number, I said I was on the very low end, that that would drastically change the second that I found out that I had something wrong with me, you know, that it was imminent death. But I kind of disagree. I could only imagine what it's like. I spent a lot of time with Michael Foreman for my TBI book. 
who had cancer, who was dying, who was living his life and just amazing the way that he handled death. Sure, he was sad about some things that he wasn't going to see, but he didn't have those kinds of regrets. He didn't go out, you know, trying to clutch onto everything. So that I don't think I'm going to be that way. I'm I don't know. I don't want to die, but we're going to fucking die. And I don't have regret because of the way I have lived my life. There's shit that I regret about my life. I regret my past. I regret certain things that certain ways that I thought and certain things that I did and people that I've hurt and all that kind of stuff. My, my, that shit's all behind me. I have been living what I feel is a good life. I try to help other people. I try to be loving, but honestly, all I really fucking care about is my family. So, and that has been the most important thing for so long. I've been, you know, stay at home dad. So I've been able to be such a big part of my kids' lives, you know, and not that I always have, and that I, I have at times put my work first. I've got a babysitter. I got a nanny before for certain times so I could work. And, you know, so it wasn't like I, all my attention was into the kids, but I, it's been an important part of my life. And my biggest thing, what I've told myself from the very start, and a big part of this too, is like, I figured I would have been dead by 24. I would have killed myself by 24. Like every year that I go longer, I'm like, oh, bonus, bonus, bonus. So there's that. But my job as a parent, my job as a person, like my, why I'm here is to make sure that those two kids love themselves, know they can do anything that they want to, and that they will not need me when I do die. You know, so those are my things. And I feel like I've accomplished that. They would be very upset and sad and miss me and everything else about that, I hope. But they would be okay. They wouldn't have all these problems because I was no longer there, because I've already instilled all these things in them. My wife and I have instilled those things in them. So, no, I don't think, you know, yeah, fuck, I might get some terrible news. I'm always kind of half expecting it, not fearing it, but, ex you know, I wouldn't be surprised if I got cancer. I wouldn't be surprised by all these other things. I think a lot of people think they're immortal, you know, and they're just going to, doesn't matter what they do, whatever else. I realize I've taken risks. I've abused my body. I've abused my brain. I've done a lot of shit, you know, and nothing is just, so there's that. So I'm very curious what your regret meter is. How high are you? Do you, would you have a lot of regret from, you know, not spending time with your kids, not telling people that you love them? Maybe it's not accomplishing enough. You know, I, I know some writers where they need to accomplish, they need to reach that bestseller. If they don't reach bestseller, then they're going to, they never made it. You know, I realized, yeah, that'd be nice, but it's not going to change my life any bit at all. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't improve my life. For some people, I know the finances would make a huge improvement or whatever else, but in my case, whether I had a million dollars and everyone knew me and this and that, it would probably just cause more problems, honestly. I still want that problem and I'll take it on, but it wouldn't make my life any happier. I wouldn't be more accomplished because I wrote two more books or three more books or this book was a success and that one, you know. So accomplishments don't mean shit. I don't, I mean, to me, they don't. So everyone has their own beliefs, though. But I would love to know where you land on a regret meter. Do you have a lot of regret? Do you think you won't have regret? What are your reasons? I love learning from other people because most people keep this shit and most people don't want to talk about it. And most people are not very real about it when they do, not very honest. So be honest with yourself.
and think about that. Think about how you're going to feel when it's your time and realizing that time could come at any moment. So maybe you have something that gives you a lot of, maybe you have faith, maybe you have, maybe you have confidence that something is going to happen that's wonderful after you die. And so death, there's nothing to regret, nothing to worry about, nothing, you know, maybe that's there too. So let's go into the second part of this. Let's go into religion because I had a very good friend text me later that night after seeing my post about regret and he texted me saying, he hoped that I wasn't using that as a compass and that pretty much saying, if you don't believe in God, you're going to burn in hell. I don't believe in God. I don't believe I'm going to burn in hell. But my beliefs. So here's here's where my issue is with that. So I thanked him. I said, dude, I appreciate your love and concern. You know, I think our we have different belief systems, but our moral values are very similar. You know, that's. It's pretty much live a good life. You know, that is my thing. That is what I'm going off of. I want to live a good life. I'm not worried about what may or may not happen after we die. If I burn in the depths of hell, then so be it. it, it like, I wouldn't want to be part of, <laughs> of that God that would send people to hell for simply not obeying him or whatever little rules he has. So that's that. That's my little rant. But the big thing is beliefs. If you believe in religion whatever you believe in, it's a belief. It is not a fact. You know, your set of circumstances, you were exposed to this, this, and this. So now you believe this, this, and this. But if you go on and tell other people, hey, this is the truth, my belief, my belief, not a fact, my belief is the truth. You should follow this. Your belief is wrong. My belief is right. So there's over 10,000 religions. So everyone that's in a religion, do you believe that those other 9,999 other religions are wrong? Or at least the ones that have a different main belief? You know, do, are all those people idiots? Are they just confused? Were they not given the right source of information? People that don't believe in God, are they wrong? Like, so to believe that your set of beliefs based off of whatever factors is more real or is the real answer compared to someone else that has like i have spent a ton of time researching religion the the similarities between religions the hypocrisy in all these different religions and i'm not saying that they're wrong and i'm very very happy that so many people have religion and i'm grateful for that like my mom is so religious my dad is too i am glad they have that that i've been at people's deathbeds i've listened to people tell me their stories, you know, over the course of weeks about dying and they believed in God and heaven. And that was fucking wonderful. And I love that they had that. I don't need that. I don't want that. Maybe someday it will, it will come to me and I'm not going to, so I'm not going to say that either because I'm saying my belief, I don't know. I don't know if there's a God or not. I don't know. I don't know any of those things. Those are beliefs. Those are not facts. I would never go and tell someone else, Hey, I don't think there's a God. So you shouldn't think there's a God because you're wasting your time and you're blah, 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 blah. No, fuck, I don't know. They're beliefs. I have a belief. You have a belief. I don't want to change your belief. I don't want to say, hey, have you ever thought of this? Have you read this? Have you like, no, live your life. I don't care. So again, I'm not upset my friend, but just that general thinking like, hey, my belief is right because I read or I saw or I did or I thought or whatever 
yours is wrong. So that's with politics, that's with everything. You know, maybe with morals, <laughs> we could have a debate and I would debate some people on different types of morals, like is it wrong to kill somebody, shit like that. But as far as, yes, this religion is the right religion, no, no, not gonna do that. Not gonna be okay with that. No, I have my set of beliefs. I'm okay. I, <laughs> I have spent the time, I've come up with my decision I'm a big boy. I'm okay. I'm going to stick with it. So yeah, hopefully that's not disrespectful to anyone. I'm not talking shit about anyone's religion. Everyone's belief is everyone's belief. So that's what it is. Hopefully you guys are still cool with me. I love you. I love everybody. And that's the thing. I don't give a fuck what religion you are. Like, cool. <laughs> awesome. You should, no one should care what I am. No one should care about that stuff because ah, whatever. All right. That's just done. I'm done with that. I'm going to, we'll see whether or not I actually put it out. But yeah, I think if we just treat each other with respect, if we understand that, like, why do we put our thought process? Why do we put our beliefs above everyone else's? I don't know. So that's my, that's my little rant. Believe what you want. And I get it. I get it. If you are, if, if you're really afraid for, for someone that they're going to burn in hell, if you love someone and you're really convinced that, oh my God, they're going to spend eternity in this burning place or they're never going to reach heaven or i'll never see him again like i kind of get it but i would check with that person and see whether or not they want to have a conversation and then be really interesting if you can listen to them and their reasons and respect that as much as what you want how you want them to respect you what is it do unto others so if you don't want someone else telling you how to believe or what to believe in don't do that to other people all right, guys, that's it for now. Let's go on to try not to die in the pandemic. I am super psyched about going to Midsummer Scream, hanging out with some awesome authors. If you are in the Long Beach area, head down tonight. It'll be on all weekend, but I will just be there tonight. But yeah, stop by Saturday, Sunday, say hi to my buddies, pick up some books, support your local authors. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of Try Not to Die. Here are the next three scenes narrated by A.J. Carter, and I will talk to you guys next week. Peace. I'm holding onto the edge of the chute, finding it difficult to let go. I can see into the back room, the shouts from the galley dying down. If anyone looks in the chute, they'll see me for sure. The putrid air makes it so hard to breathe in here. The foulest thing I'd ever smelled was the time Dad had bad scallops, but this is ten times worse. Dylan, Amy says, we've got to move. Which way? I keep clutching the chute with one hand and press my body against the disgusting wet wall to turn around. It smells like every dead thing I've ever come across, mixed with rotten vegetables and human waste. I cover my mask with my hand and look down at the glistening garbage bags. They're wet. I hate heights, and my balance sucks. But I tell Amy, we're not going down in that. Who knows how deep it goes. And, judging by the smell, I bet they funnel in stuff from when you flush the toilets, too. The fumes may be toxic, she says. My eyes and nose sting and my throat's a little tight. Our only choice is to push through. You lightheaded at all? Amy asks. I'm not feeling so good. The ledge is almost big enough to hold my feet, heel to toe. I can work with this. I've had to balance on smaller surfaces. Our coaches made us do the gymnastics, even when we were ball players. 
Coach Robbins told us it would pay off down the road. He didn't know how right he'd be. Bang! The galley door smacks the wall. You must be Anthony, a man says, his deep voice barreling down the tunnel. I want to run, but anything over an inch at a time, and we will end up swimming in sewage. Everywhere I touch is filth, and I'm feeling like I might have to puke. Hey! You hear me? The guy says, the voice muffled but loud enough to make out. What's that? Anthony says, his voice distorted. You need a mask back here. You, Anthony? I'm Charlie, Anthony says. Just came back to get some tomatoes for the pasta sauce. Amy maneuvers around the corner and whispers, We've got to move. These fumes can't be good for us. I'm not worried about messing up my lungs, only what Anthony's going to tell him. I say, I'll be right behind you. So, where'd he go? The bad guy asks. Anthony? It looks like I got patience, smartass. I attempt the corner, right foot first. There's nothing to grip on this side, and I'm afraid to move my left foot. Not at all. Anthony's on break, so he probably went to the bathroom, Anthony says. You can try that hallway. Eagle, come in here. A door opens and shuts. What's up, rooster? Anyone pass you? Ain't no one out here, Eagle says. Amy slides back beside me and takes my hand, whispers in my ear, Come on, Dylan. I'm sure you've been to enough rock climbing parties to know the basics. Don't move until you have sure footing. Find your handholds. Don't rush. Go slow. Hey, Phoenix. Any sign of them in the vicinity? Amy's last memory will not be of me petrified with fear. I slide my foot around the corner and follow her to the large ridge that bisects the entire room. That's too bad you're not Anthony, Rooster says, because he might have been useful. Hey, okay, man, Anthony says, his voice shaky. I don't want any problems. Well, I'm afraid you got them. Where'd they go? I told them to get out of here. I didn't want nothing to do with them. They didn't go through the galley and they didn't go through that door. Anthony doesn't say anything, or at least not loud enough for us to hear. I'm barely moving, but my heart is beating as fast as a jackhammer. I've got to focus. Separate my body from my mind. Stop thinking and just go forward. A light beam shines out of the chute we'd crawled through. Could they have fit inside here? Asks Rooster. It's a garbage chute, Anthony says. I don't think anyone can fit in there. They're kids, you idiot, Rooster says. Of course they can. The light turns off. Where does this head to? Rooster asks. Where else accesses it? There's a row of small vents, about three feet wide and three feet tall, on the far wall with conveyor belts that lead into the garbage pool. If they look through any one of the next three vents, they'll see us creeping around in here. If we don't hurry, there's a chance the fumes will overtake us, and we'll just fall into this rot pot and not be discovered until the ship docks, or maybe never. I look down and realize I'm really lightheaded. I've got to get a hold of myself. Don't give in. Fight this. I inhale a big breath. Exhale. As awful as the air is, it gives me enough to recover.
Phoenix, find a map of the boat and what rooms connect to the garbage pit closest to the Belaforte galley, Rooster says. Monitor every hallway in the area. We keep inching along the wall, are nearly to the first of the three vents. I don't care you're by yourself, Rooster says. Crow says they don't get away. Amy's at the first vent. She leans in and whispers, What should we do? We can't waste any more time. Let me go first. She doesn't argue, just scoots to the side, offers her hands as a stirrup. I don't want to put my dirty shoes on her, but both of our hands are already black with filth. Will you be able to get up behind me? She nods and boosts me up and into the vent. Nothing on the belt beside a few sheets and towels. The air is already better. The wooziness fading. I crawl a few feet along the conveyor. Tell Amy. Grab my ankles to pull yourself up. Amy takes hold of my right ankle and pulls herself up. My toe slips out from under me and her weight slams my shin into the edge. There's no stopping my yelp. They're in here! Eagle shouts. I knew it! I push up on my elbows and army crawl forward, bringing Amy with me, ignoring my throbbing shin. My breathing is ragged, my adrenaline dumping. We've got to get out of here. The room ahead of us is dark, but I make out large yellow bins on the ground. Also, there are some large, boxy things behind them. Washing machines, dryers. It's an empty laundry room. I'm about four feet from the floor, no way to turn around and ease myself out. I say, hold my feet. She grabs them, and I crawl out of the tunnel, use my hands to walk down the wall until I touch the cold tile floor. I tell Amy to let go, and I roll forward onto the floor, popping up to make sure no one is in here. I hurry back to the vent and help Amy out. She reaches for her back pocket, her eyes going big. I lost the blade. It must have fallen. The big laundry bins to our right are nearly filled to the top with unfolded white towels. All the machines look empty. To their left, there's a door and several tables with stacks of folded towels and sheets. I move toward the door, freeze at the sound of footsteps. Just outside. Voices. Rooster and someone else. The footsteps stop. The door handle jiggles. It doesn't open. It's locked. Open it, Rooster says. I am, I am, Anthony says, sounding like he's been crying. Sorry, I, I don't know what tea it is. Come on, Rooster says. We don't have all day. I'm trying. If they see us, we're dead. Give me the keys, Rooster says. Let me do it. Time to make a decision. To hide inside an industrial dryer, go to chapter 27. To go back inside the garbage chute, go to chapter 28. To hide in a laundry bin, go to chapter 29. There's no way we can make it into the garbage chute in time, and hiding inside dryers and washing machines is a bad idea, even when there aren't bad guys chasing you. The laundry bins are all we've got. I pull Amy past the row of dryers, the bins piled high with unfolded sheets and towels. Back by the washers, some of the bins are filled with unwashed whites, the others nearly empty. I point Amy to the halfway full one tucked between the wall and the last machine. 
Get in, I whisper as the laundry room lock clicks. Amy's in the bin on her back, looking up, her eyes full of fear. There's no time for me to find another bin. So I grab an armload of damp sheets and towels from the bin beside us and climb in with Amy. The door opens and boots clack on the tiles. Rooster says, Now that wasn't so hard, was it? No, sir, Anthony says, sounding like an entirely different person. Broken. The lights flicker to life. The wall of machines make it hard to hear footsteps, but I'm assuming there's a couple of them. I hover over Amy so I don't squish her. Have her help cover us with the laundry. Eagle, check that garbage chute over there, Rooster orders. Chicken, take these keys to the next room. You got it, Chicken says, sounding stuffy like he's fighting a cold. Yell the second you see them. Don't want to end up like Eagle, Rooster says with a little laugh. Yeah, let's see how he does one-on-one, Eagle says. Amy squeezes me tight, her arms and legs wrapped around me. I've never been this close with another person in my life. Our eyes just inches apart, her heart rapidly beating beneath mine. Our breath is shallow behind the masks, but still so loud in the silence around us. He's not in there, Eagle says. This is some kind of compactor, too. Her eyes go big like she's imagining what could have happened to us if we'd hidden in there. Any sign they were in there? Rooster asks. There's nasty handprints all over this wall, Eagle says. Damn it, this is it. My best hope is to be a human shield for Amy. Hope she can survive. Can someone lock the door from the outside without a key? Rooster asks. I'm not sure, Anthony asks. Can I check? A loud smack makes Amy hug me even closer. Anthony cries out in pain. I'm sorry, he says. I'm going. Eagle, take the dryers, Rooster says. The weight of the room seems to change, the bad psychic energy descending like a blanket of hard rain. You can lock it on the way out, Anthony says. Doors clank and thud, creak and thwack, Amy cringing every time, our hearts racing. Even under the towels, the lighting and shadows change as people move about the room. Someone enters our row and starts opening and shutting the washers. Tears are leaking from Amy's eyes. I pull down my mask and mouth the words, Can I? She nods as the slams come closer and closer. I lower her mask. So much beauty. So much fear. Nothing in these, Rooster says. We're wasting our damn time with this, Eagle says. They could be anywhere. Tell that to Crow. This isn't how I imagined my very first kiss, but there's no one else I'd rather it be with. I put my lips against Amy's and stare into her eyes, a turbulent ocean ready to wash us away. Phoenix, come in, Eagle radios. What other rooms connect to it? Have you seen them in the halls? Rooster walks away from us and says, Get away from that door. Yes, sir, Anthony says, quick footsteps to the middle of the room. Don't get smart with me, Eagle says, I'm assuming over the radio. What's that, Crow? 335, Rooster says. Got it. I've got no idea what that refers to, 
but I hope it's not their time of departure, seven hours from now. Maybe it's code for their next move. Let's move on, Rooster says. Okay, Anthony says. You still need me? No, Rooster says. Your service is complete. Thank you, Anthony says. Amy pulls me in closer and kisses me deeply, the relief mutual. My pleasure, Rooster says, sounding about as evil as can be. Hey, Anthony's sentence turns into gagging. Don't fight it, Eagles says, his voice strained. Anthony's muffled pleas for air, for help, pierce my soul. I want to jump out and save him, but Amy's holding me tight. I'd only get us killed, too. The seconds tick by as the struggle drags on, finally ending in silence. Rooster says, Tougher than he looked, huh? This isn't what I signed up for, Eagle says a little out of breath. Like I said, talk to Crow, Rooster says. What are you doing? Grabbing his wallet. Maybe a memento or two. No telling how much these delays are going to cost us. Fine, but hurry up. Footsteps head away from us. A door opens and closes. I listen closely but can't hear a thing. There's no way to know if one of them stayed behind, and they're just trying to draw us out. The ship's framework creaks ever so slightly. We're deep enough on the inside for most of the ocean sounds to be muted, but can still feel the movements in the water. We are rocking more than usual. In the quietest voice I've ever used, I ask, Think it's safe. Amy releases her grip, but she's still shaking. I don't know. They're probably with Chicken turning over whatever room is next to this one. And if they are out there laying a trap for us, then we're done either way. I keep the towel on my head and peer over the edge of the laundry bin. I can't see anything other than the washer and dryer units. Quiet as can be, I climb out of the bin and peek past the machines, make sure the rest of the room is empty, ignoring Anthony spread out on the floor, a twisted sheet around his neck. Amy's standing in the bin waiting for me. I help her out. With the light on, we can see just how disgusting we look, our clothes soaked with oil and streaked with filth. I shuck off my sweatshirt and tell Amy to do the same. They've got a guy watching the cameras. Maybe this will confuse him. She says, How about the tiger mask? I tear it off and throw it into the bin on top of my sweatshirt. Good point. Amy has on a black t-shirt. She slips her mask in her back pocket and says, A bright red nose is probably just as much of a giveaway. I start down the aisle and warn her. Keep your eyes on the door. Amy nods and walks with me toward Anthony. I don't want to look at him, but I owe him that much. I say, he lost his life trying to help us. Anthony lies crumpled on the floor, chest not moving. His eyes are open and bulging, his mouth gaping, deep scratches on his neck from trying to tear off the sheet. Amy says, Come on, Dylan, we can't help him. My anger surprises me, but it feels so much better than fear. We can't let them get away with this. But how do we stop them, Amy says. They have control of the ship. The sea marshal or your dad, I say. 
They're the only ones with guns. Time to make a decision. To go left down the hallway to find Officer Downing, go to Chapter 30. To go right down the hallway to head to Amy's cabin, go to Chapter 31. I put my ear to the laundry room door, but don't hear anything. No footsteps, no voices. There's an inside lever on the lock. I open it without a sound. Pull the door inward, slow and easy. Look through the slit. Nothing but hall. No bad guys. I open it enough to walk through and say, Looks clear. Amy shuts the door and leads us left down the hallway. There's a loud bang from behind. Probably the bad guys in the next room. We walk a little faster, but under control, cautious of every door we're passing. The corner coming up. I whisper, We see anyone, and you just go. You run as fast as you can to your cabin. She shakes her head. We're in this together. We take the next left, the hallway long and empty. I say, This is going to take us back to the galley. That's good, she says. I know the way from there. All I can think of are the screams before we disappeared into the garbage. Maybe that's not a good idea. Well, I think it's a worse idea to head back that way, Amy says. A door slams shut down the hallway we'd been in. I'll check the last room, Rooster says. You guys head back. I don't know if back means our way, but we assume it does and start booking it toward the galley. We make it about twenty yards when the hallway lights flash off, everything cast in darkness, both of us coming to a halt so we don't crash into something. Amy finds my hand. Oh my god, she whispers. What now? I say, I don't know. Keep walking. After a few seconds, the lights pop back on. They flick immediately off, then on, off, on, like someone put a child at the controls. We turn the corner and hear sizzling sounds, smell the french fries and green beans. There's a body lying outside the galley door at the end of the hallway. The overhead speaker crackles to life. Hello, passengers of the Aria, Crow says. This is your new captain speaking. My heart drops to the bottom of my stomach. All hope lost. I can't move. Wake up, sleepyheads, Crow says. I have some very crucial updates for you. They are most certainly a matter of life and death. There are footsteps and voices around the corner. Amy pulls me after her and says, We've got to hurry up. The announcement continues, Crow telling everyone to stay locked in their rooms. The galley's awfully quiet, nothing but sizzling sounds and the soft drone of Italian music. The guy lying face down on the ground's a handyman, a tool belt around his waist. Judging by the gray halo of hair, he might have been someone's grandpa, making the bullet hole in the back of his head that much sadder. We, the liberating agents of change, have full control of this vessel, including keys to each and every one of your rooms, Crow says. I snatch a screwdriver out of the custodian's belt and hand it to Amy, hoping the four inches of metal will be enough to protect her. Those are the guys that hit the Euro rail in August. Now you rich pigs shall see what it's like to be on the other side of the coin, Crow says. 
you have ten minutes to gather all of your valuables, including credit cards, driver's license, and any form of ID. Afraid someone's going to spot us in the hallway, and in desperate need of a weapon, I pull us into the galley. The smell hits me hard. A fastball to the face. It is a mixture of hot grease and diarrhea. I cover my nose and mouth with my left hand. That smells like cooking meat inside a men's room at an airport. Amy says, So freaking gross. Don't look, I say, trying to block Amy's view of the carnage spread in front of us. The speaker crackles. Put all of these items in a clear plastic bag and tie it to your door handle, Crow says. Any room that doesn't have a bag will receive a visit from my crew. The galley is splattered with blood. The skinny dishwasher is a few feet in front of me, a river of red running from his neck to the drain. Remember that valuables are only valuable if you're alive, Crow says. Don't be stupid. From behind me, Amy asks, What is it? It's bad. You stay here and listen for them. She says, I'm not leaving you again. The tall, scruffy guy who had been working the grill is now lying halfway on top of it, steam rising from all around him, a butcher knife sticking out of his back, blood pooling in a circle on his white jacket. Beyond the grill, the pot-bellied man is bent over the deep fryer, his head inside the boiling vat of oil. The apple-dicing woman is curled up by her station in a puddle of blood. The short guy who'd been working the pastries is a few feet from the open walk-in freezer, three bullet holes in his back. They're all dead, I say, all because of me. Amy keeps her voice low but stern. No, she says, it's because of these monsters. I need to find a weapon before they catch up to us. The last thing I want to do is pull the knife out of the grill guy, but I'm going to fight back by any means necessary. Even if these guys win, they're not getting away unscathed. My gut is wound up tight like dog hair wrapped around a vacuum roller. I take a deep breath and move to the main stoves, twist the burner dial to off. I slip away from the stove and around the dead man, search the other side for something sharp. There is a holder, but it only has tongs and spoons, a bunch of empty slots where the knives had been. Past the end of the stoves, the mustached man is boiling inside the fryer. I gag, picturing his face peeled off from the heat, cooking like pork skins in the boiling oil. Just leave him be, Amy says. I don't want to get any closer, but I'm not leaving him cooking. There's a bunch of buttons on the top of the machine. I press the lit-up orange one and it goes dark. The overhead vent cuts off and the boiling slows, smoke spreading everywhere. French fries and green beans, overcooked meat and burnt hair. Come on. Amy grabs my hand and takes me to the walk-in freezer to escape the smoke. The cold is immediate, a quick slap to the face. The air's better in here, but Amy positions herself in the doorway, waves away from the smoke. I'll be quick, I tell her. Maybe there's something useful. The shelves are stocked with food, which makes me angry. They've been feeding us freaking peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and bagels. Well, all the time, they seem to have had plenty of food. There isn't anything other than boxes on the shelves, but there's something metal near the back. Three meat hooks hang from a pipe. 
each almost a foot long from tip to hanger. I grab the wooden handle of one and take it down, swing it back and forth a few times. Anyone on the other side of this is going to be hurting really bad. Amy sees me taking down a second one and says, Is that for me? I can't use that. The meat hook feels solid in my hands. I say, No problem. I'm going double meat hook action. Amy spins around the galley. Dylan! Eagle, the bald guy with the bum knee, leaps at Amy, spins her around so her back is to him, his arm around her throat, his mouth just inches from her ear. I raise the meat hooks and warn him. Let her go. Eagle looks up and smiles, a holstered gun on his hip. Nah, she might smell like crap, but I think we'll keep her for a bit. It's about eight feet to the freezer door. No way Eagle will get there before me with Amy struggling in his arms. I take another step and say, It'll be the last thing you do. Falcon enters the doorway, his left arm in a makeshift sling, his right holding a nearly empty bottle of whiskey by the neck. Um, I don't think it will. Amy throws her body side to side and stomps on Eagle's boots. He clamps down on his choke, Amy's face turning red. Ooh, he says. I love it when they fight. What's wrong? Falcon asks me. Not so brave when they see you coming. A shiver rips through me. You're the cowards! Join us, Falcon says, slurring his words. He offers the bottle. Come have a drink with me. We'll have a party. Just the four of us. The meat hooks feel so heavy in my hands. I consider throwing one as a distraction, but I'm not so sure I can make it out the door before Falcon closes it. Falcon raises the bottle and pounds the last bit remaining at its bottom. Your choice, he says with a shrug. You can stay in there. Watch us have a good time through the window. Eagle leans over Amy a bit more, his cheek pressed against hers, his free hand caressing her hair. You won't want to miss this. Amy's frozen, all fight gone. She's looking down toward her left hand that's pointing behind her back. I've got no idea what she's trying to tell me. I just want her safe. Let her go! I scream, ready to attack. You don't get it, Falcon says. You don't give the orders. I say, fine. So set those down and come out here, Falcon says. You'll just kill us both. He smiles. Guess there's only one way to find out. Time to make a decision. To set down the meat hooks and sacrifice myself for Amy, go to chapter 32. To throw a meat hook at Falcon and charge, go to chapter 33. To pretend I'm giving up to get into the galley, go to chapter 34.